Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Last time we saw that some influential Christians rejected the biblical teaching on the kingdom because the idea of living on earth forever seemed crude to them. This time, we'll look at how the ancients thought about bodies and bodily pleasures. As it turns out, from at least Plato onward, many philosophers tended to embrace a very negative view of pleasure, arguing that the truly enlightened person should exercise abstinence and discipline as much as possible. This idea flourished among the Stoics and Neoplatonists and infiltrated Christianity from the 2nd century onward. Consequently, the biblical descriptions of feasting in the kingdom with the patriarchs and resurrected bodies seem to demand reinterpretation. Additionally, kingdom deniers labeled kingdom advocates hedonists, as if their uncontrollable desire for pleasure motivated their belief in the kingdom. In this episode, I do touch on certain bodily pleasures, not in any kind of a graphic way, but just be warned, this might not be appropriate for children. This is Lecture 12 of the Kingdom of God class, originally taught at the Atlanta Bible College. To take this class for credit, please contact ABC so you can do the work necessary for a grade. Here now is Episode 103, The Kingdom is Too Hedonic. Lecture number 12. This is part two of three in Rejecting the Kingdom, and this is reason number two. The kingdom of God is too hedonistic or hedonic. Apart from thinking the biblical doctrine of the kingdom was too crude and unsophisticated, the ancient Christians also thought it was too hedonic or hedonistic. Hedonism comes from a Greek word, idoni, and this, this word means pleasure, enjoyment, or delight. And as a result of that, the word hedonism means uh, the belief that pleasure is life's goal. Famously, the ancient Epicureans thought that pleasure was life's goal, and the Stoics liked to make fun of them and accuse them of being shallow, or I don't know what they accuse them of, accuse them of being pleasure seekers. Our plan for this lecture is fourfold. One, to show you that some Christians rejected the kingdom belief because it was too hedonistic. So I'm gonna, like last time, show you actual quotes from primary sources of Christians who charge those who believe in the kingdom as believing in it because they just want pleasure. And then two, I wanna explain why ancient people thought pleasure was bad. Why they embraced asceticism. That's a nice vocabulary word, right? Which is actually the opposite of this right here. That's the belief that pleasure is bad. This is not life's goal, but it's to be avoided. Ascetics are those who deny pleasure because pleasure is bad. So first of all, I'm going to show you some early Christian quotes. Then I'm going to look at their culture 
and their beliefs about pleasure and asceticism. And then what we'll do, and this is really the fun part, we'll look at what the Bible says about bodily pleasures. And then last of all, take a look at how this affects us today. Here are some quotes from early Christians who thought the kingdom was too pleasure-centered. This is a guy named Gaius from the early second century complaining and arguing against another guy named Serenthus. And so Gaius says, but Serenthus also, by means of revelations which he pretends were written by a great apostle, brings forth before us marvelous things which he falsely claims were shown him by angels. And he says that after the resurrection, the kingdom of Christ will be set up on earth and that the flesh dwelling in Jerusalem will again be subject to desires and pleasures. This deluded wacko, how could he, how could he possibly imagine such unsophisticated, hedonic ideas? How could he do that? He goes on. And being an enemy of the scriptures of God, he asserts with the purpose of deceiving men that there is to be a period of a thousand years for marriage festivals. Can you imagine that? Actual marriage festivals for a thousand years. What could be worse? After Gaius in the second century, we have Origen. He's always at the center of fighting against the kingdom, sadly. And Origen in the early third century writes, Certain persons then refusing the labor of our thinking and adopting a superficial view of the letter of the law and yielding rather in some measure to the indulgence of their own desires and lusts, being disciples of the letter alone, are of the opinion that the fulfillment of the promises of the future are to be looked for in bodily pleasure and luxury, and therefore they especially desire to have again, after the resurrection, such bodily structures as may never be without the power of eating and drinking and performing all the functions of flesh and blood. Man, that's a long sentence. Yeah. Anybody who thinks that humans are getting smarter and smarter hasn't read anyone ancient. <laughs> so, once again, Origen is saying that, look, if you believe in a resurrected body that can eat and drink and experience bodily pleasure, then you only believe in that because you have out-of-control lusts in your life. Next, Origen once again, and even as those who because of the fact that they do not interpret the prophecies allegorically suppose that after the resurrection we will eat and drink bodily food and drink since also the words of the prophetic writings embrace such as these. Isn't that an incredible admission? He's like, look, you guys actually think we're going to eat and drink bodily food and drink since also the words of the prophetic writings embrace such as these. In other words, you actually believe the Bible. So also what has been written concerning marriages of both men and women keeping to the, ah, here's his big point, literal and supposing that we will take part in intercourse then on account of which it is not even possible to have time for prayer when being in a state of defilement and uncleanness, partaking in sexual pleasures. So how did Origen feel about sex? Bad. Sex bad, right? Bodily pleasures, bad. Eating and drinking, bad. This guy didn't even wear shoes because he thought that that was too much catering to his flesh. He tried to sleep on the floor as much as possible throughout his life. He tried to avoid meat because meat tastes good. And he trained himself every day for the moment when the government would come and torture him. 
And eventually, you know what? The government did come and torture him. So maybe it wasn't such a bad idea in his case. But what he says here is that if you believe in actually what the prophet said in a literal sense, then you are being swept away by basically sexual desires. It's always like the easiest accusation to make. Oh, you're just, you're just controlled by your sexual appetites. That's why you believe that. You can see how this would work in their culture. Dionysius, once again, from the mid-third century, he writes, For the doctrine which he, Serenthus, taught was this, that the kingdom of Christ will be an, an earthly one, and as he himself was devoted to the pleasures of the body and altogether sensual in his nature, he dreamed that the kingdom would consist in those things which he desired, namely in the delights of the belly and of sexual passion. So this is, once again, another Christian who's criticizing this man named Serenthus. The other one was Gaius, if you recall, or Gaius. And... Now Dionysius is also criticizing that same person, saying that the only reason why Serenthus believed in the kingdom of Christ on earth is because he was devoted to pleasures of the body. He wanted to have sex. That's why Serenthus believes in the kingdom. And, okay, he goes on. That is to say, in eating and drinking and marrying and in festivals and sacrifices and the slaying of victims under the guise of which he thought he could indulge his appetites with a better grace. Boy, they could write, though, couldn't they? All right, here's Jerome. It doesn't ever get better than Jerome. He's the juiciest and the most sarcastic. He writes in the 4th century, late 4th century, he says in his commentary to Isaiah, I do not envy them these people that believe in the kingdom. I don't envy them. If they love the earth so much that they desire earthly things in the kingdom of Christ, and if after an abundance of foods and the gluttony of their gullet and belly, they seek that which is below the belly. That's Jerome. So these are, oh, and then I have uh, Augustine too. Another quote from the fifth century. The evangelist John has spoken of these two resurrections in the book, which is called the Apocalypse, but in such a way that some Christians do not understand the first of the two. We read this before and construe it into ridiculous fancies, but I'm going to go on this time and read the rest. Those who, on the strength of this passage, have suspected that the first resurrection is future and bodily have been moved, among other things, specially by the number of a thousand years, as if it were a fit thing that the saints should thus enjoy a kind of Sabbath rest during that period, a holy leisure. And this opinion would not be objectionable if it were believed that the joys of the saints in the Sabbath shall be spiritual and consequent on the presence of God. For I myself, too, once held this opinion. But as they assert that those who then rise again shall enjoy the leisure of immoderate carnal banquets, furnished with an amount of meat and drink, such as not only to shock the feeling of the temperate, but even to surpass the measure of credulity itself, such assertions can be believed only by the carnal. They who do believe them are called by the spiritual chilius, which we may literally reproduce by the name millenarians. So this is Augustine, and he says, this whole resurrection idea, this whole kingdom idea, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be so bad. It wouldn't be so bad if they thought of everything in terms of the spiritual and the presence of God. But they think of it in terms of immoderate carnal banquets. Where in the world would they ever get the idea of an immoderate carnal banquet from? Maybe Isaiah 25, where it says there's going to be rich meats and fine wines and everyone's going to have this enjoyable feast. And Jesus promises it, right? He says you're going to sit at a table with Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob dining in the kingdom. 
because we've built this foundation of all this knowledge about the kingdom from the scriptures, now we're coming to these church history quotes, you're able to see them for what they really are. But if you don't have that biblical background, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, what you said, Jerome, what you said, Augustine, right? These guys are not little, they're big shots. So the two activities, once again, just in case you didn't notice, that they keep criticizing are eating and sex, right? Eating, drinking, and sex, if you want to bring it into three. But basically, it's under the heading of bodily pleasures. So the question we have to ask is, why in the world did they think bodily pleasures were bad? Well, as with the universe, so with the body, Plato played a great influence. And I've already mentioned this to you in our, my lecture on the sleep of the dead, that Plato had a book named The Phaedo, in which he talked about the last days of Socrates. And just like the Timaeus, his book about creation, had a huge influence on educated thinkers, so the Phaedo had a huge influence on educated thinkers as well. And I'm just going to read you a little quote out of this. It might overlap a little bit with the quote we read before, but that's okay. This is what Plato says. Now, again, he's 400 years before Christ, but he's still speaking in the third century after Christ. <laughs> People are still reading him. Plato writes, And will he think much of the other ways of indulging the body, for example, the acquisition of costly raiment or sandals or other adornments of the body instead of caring about them? Does he not rather despise anything more than nature needs? So this is Plato talking well, it's actually Fido talking in his Plato's book, the Fido, and he's asking the question, or maybe, this, no, actually this is Socrates asking the question of what a philosopher will want, right? And, and for these books, the way it works is the philosopher is the enlightened one. The philosopher is who you want to be. The philosopher gets out of the cave, right? So the question Socrates is asking here is, Will he, the philosopher, think much of the other ways of indulging the body? And what does he mean by indulging the body? Getting nice clothes, getting nice shoes, getting, I don't know, jewelry, adornments of the body, right? Clothes, shoes, jewelry. Maybe coats. Coats. Fancy hair. Fancy hair. Instead of caring about them, does he not rather despise, hate anything more than nature needs? So that's the way Socrates is saying the enlightened person, the educated person, the philosopher thinks about bodily adornments. What do you say? He goes on, I should say the true philosopher would despise them. Would you not say that he is entirely concerned with the soul and not with the body? He would like as far as he can to be quit of the body and turn to the soul. Yes, that is true. In matters of this sort, philosophers above all other men may be observed in every sort of way to dissever the soul from the body. That is true. Whereas Simeus, the rest of the world are of the opinion that a life which has no bodily pleasures and no part in them is not worth having, but that he who thinks nothing of bodily pleasures is almost as though he were dead. Isn't this so interesting? So Plato, Plato is writing about this and, he, and he's, he's saying, well, you know, like pretty much everybody thinks the whole point of life is to have bodily pleasures and that bodily pleasures are good. And in fact, he actually blames war on the pursuit of bodily pleasures. And like, if we didn't have bodies, we wouldn't even have war. That <laughs> comes up in the same book. And yet, the philosopher, the enlightened, the educated, the sophisticated knows better than the masses that the pursuit of bodily pleasures 
is just vain. It's empty. It's not going to satisfy your soul. That's what he's saying here. That is quite true. He goes on. What again shall we say of the actual acquirement of knowledge? Is the body, if invited to share in the inquiry, a hinderer or a helper? I mean to say, having sight and hearing any truth in them? Have sight and hearing any truth in them? Are they not, as the poets are always telling us, inaccurate witnesses? You know what's wrong with you? You know what's wrong with your education? You're depending on your ears and your eyes. That's what's wrong with your education. Yeah, and even if they are accurate, inaccurate, and indistinct, what is to be said of the other senses? For you will allow that they are the best of them. Certainly, he replied. Then when does the soul attain truth? For in attempting to consider anything in company with the body, she is obviously deceived. Yes, that is true. Then must not existence be revealed to her in thought, if at all? Yes. And thought is best when the mind is gathered into herself, and none of these things trouble her, neither sounds, nor sights, nor pain, nor any pleasure, when she has as little as possible to do with the body, and has no bodily sense or feeling, but is aspiring after being. That is true. So that's the Fido, uh, paragraph 64 to 67. So what is he saying here? He's saying, look, the goal is to be radically independent from the body, even while you're still embodied, even while you're still alive, it's to take your mind and to meditate and to philosophize, to cogitate, to think without reference to what your eyes see. So close your eyes, get in a quiet place, and then you can get some thinking done. I don't know why, but this perspective was massively influential among thinkers. So to be clear, Plato's Fido set the stage and influenced people to think bodily pleasures were bad. Okay, that's, that's what I'm tracing back. I'm not saying other people didn't say that too before him. I don't really know. I just know that in particular, Plato was very influential. These people are reading Plato. Philo's reading Plato. Origen's reading Plato. Everybody's reading Plato who's educated in our period, which is the first couple of centuries, first four centuries of the Christian era. All right, so this is Philo. He says, again, Philo is a Jew living around the time of the Apostle Paul. He says, Innumerable circumstances are continually escaping from and eluding the human mind, inasmuch as it is entangled among and embarrassed by so great a multitude of external senses, as is very well calculated to seduce and deceive it by false opinions, since in fact it is, as I may say, buried in the mortal body, which may very properly be called its tomb." Isn't that crazy? So Philo says that your body is a tomb in which your soul is buried. In another place, Philo says, And these expounders of the law, having first of all laid down temperance as a sort of foundation for the soul to rest upon, proceed to build up other virtues on this foundation, and no one of them may take any meat or drink before the setting of the sun, since they judge that the work of philosophizing is one which is worthy of the light, but that the care for the necessities of the body is suitable only to darkness, on which account they appropriate the day to the one occupation and a brief portion of the night to the other. And some men, in whom there is planted a more fervent desire of knowledge, can endure to cherish a recollection of their food 
for three days without even tasting it, and some men are so delighted and enjoy themselves so exceedingly when regaled by wisdom which supplies them with their doctrines and all possible wealth and abundance that they can even hold out twice as great a length of time and will scarcely at the end of six days taste even necessary food, being accustomed, as they say, that grasshoppers are, to feed on air, their song, as I imagine, making their scarcity tolerable to them. All right, I don't know what he's talking about, grasshoppers, but what he's talking about here is this group of very sophisticated, philosophizing ascetics, basically monks, but they're not Christian. And what do they do? All day long, they philosophize. They get, they get out and they, they think and they figure out the mysteries of the universe. And then only at night, almost like the Muslim feast of Ramadan, right? Or the fast of Mar. Only at night, once the sun sets, would they dare to eat food? Because it's like, eating food is like something that goes with the darkness. You, know, you do it in shame. You're like, oh, off to the side, eat a little bit of bread. And they just eat bread. They just eat bread and water, and that's it. And, and, you know, if they need it, they put a little salt on the bread. But, you know, the really advanced ones don't even do that. And he says, you know, it's, it's pretty common for people to go three days without food because, you know, they're just too, too busy thinking. And then the superstars, of course, go six days because they're like grasshoppers. They just eat the air. I mean, they're, 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 they're at a level that you, you, don't even, you don't even want to touch these guys. Philo, as we've seen, is so important because he's the middleman between Greek philosophy and Christian theology. You remember that? Before Origen, Clement of Alexandria is heavily influenced by Philo in the late 2nd century. In the early 3rd century, Origen is heavily influenced by Philo. And many other Christians as well, heavily influenced by Philo. So what does Philo do? He shows you how you can believe in the Bible, which for him is the Old Testament, and believe in Greek philosophy and make them work together. And Philo agrees with Plato over against Moses that food is bad and that the body is some sort of like awkward add-on to the thinking part. In those days, okay, so this is once again Philo, he says, and in those days when wine is not introduced, but only the clearest water, cold water for the generality and hot water for those old men who are accustomed to a luxurious life. <laughs> so this, that's luxury, man. Hot water. It's really getting into it. And the table, too, bears nothing which has blood, but there is placed upon it bread for food and salt for seasoning, to which also hyssop is sometimes added as an extra sauce for the sake of those who are delicate in their eating. Like the real sissies in the group, they get a little hyssop, <laughs> whatever hyssop is. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, the real, real tough ones, you know, they're drinking cold water and bread, and they don't even take the salt. All right, so let me just cover ever so briefly with you some of the other people influenced by Plato's Fido, other than Philo, these are not Christians, but they are, actually some of them are Christians, some of them aren't, but this guy is Pseudocrates. He is from the first century, and we have a statement from him in his Cynic Epistles, chapter 11, that says, practice needing little, for this is nearest to God. Practice, it's almost like the modern movement of simple living, right? Where you're supposed to... Yeah, minimalism, where you're supposed to not have very much. And it's interesting, this word practice is the Greek verb askeo, 
which is the word from which we get asceticism, which is the belief that pleasure is bad and to be avoided, right? And so asceticism, an ascetic is somebody who practices, just like an athlete, having little, not indulging their bodily appetites. Pseudo-Diogenes from the first century, another cynic says, but you continue in your training, which again is this word ascesis, which relates to asceticism, denying pleasure, but continue in your training just as you began it and be eager to oppose in equal measure pleasure and toil. That's what you need to oppose. So says Pseudo-Diogenes. Musonius Rufus in the first century on training, Discourse 4, says, Adapt to cold, heat, thirst, hunger, plain food, a hard bed, abstinence from pleasure, and endurance of strenuous labor. <laughs> These people had a tough life. <laughs> and it's all self-imposed. You know, you, they, they didn't need to live this way, but they thought, they thought there was, like if you had a soft bed, they'd look at you and be like, now, Anna, do you really need a soft bed? <laughs> she said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I need a soft bed. Here's uh, Kelsis from the second century. Yeah. They lived like they... Yeah. Yeah, these are philosophers. This is how the philosophers live because they're being influenced by Plato's Phaedo and this idea that the body is itself to be tamed and ignored as much as possible. Kelsis, who is an anti-Christian, he writes a book against Christianity. And he writes, For God does not rule the world in order to satisfy inordinate desires or to allow disorder and confusion, but to govern a nature that is upright and just. For the soul, indeed, he might be able to provide an everlasting life. Well, dead bodies, on the contrary, as Heraclitus observes, are more worthless than dung. Dead bodies worse than poop, man. What do you... The soul maybe can get eternal life, but dead bodies? Oh, he's making fun of the Christians. You'll see. God, however, neither can nor will declare, contrary to all reason, that the flesh, which is full of those things which is not even honorable to mention, is to exist forever. Resurrection is so dumb, people. That's what Kelsus is saying. Because resurrection means you get what? Your body back. Your dead body back. So that's Kelsus arguing against the Christians. This is quoted from a book called Against Kelsus that Origen wrote trying to disprove Kelsus, but in the process of writing that book, he quoted Kelsus a lot so we can reconstruct what Kelsus actually said. Sounds like he agreed with Welcome to history. <laughs> yeah, he would agree with Kelsus on some of this. Plotinus in the third century, another non-Christian philosopher in his Aeneids, which is uh, groups of nine it's a Greek word for nine. He writes, Reasoning and the act of the intellect, for instance, are not vested in the body. Their task is not accomplished by means of the body, which in fact is detrimental to any thinking on which it is allowed to intrude. So there's Plotinus likewise saying that that body is anti-thinking and body is anti-philosophy. And then his disciple, Porphyry, brother Purple, he's not a brother, he's, he's, a, he's an anti-Christian. It's a fun book that he wrote here. The name of the book is On the Abstinence from Animal Food. <laughs> what we would call vegetarianism, right? 
Now, why is, why is porphyry a vegetarian? Interesting. If it were possible, we should abstain from all food. But since it is not, we should content ourselves, granting to nature what is necessary, and this of a light quality. Through strict moderation, eating more slender food, one will be able to reject whatever exceeds this as only contributing to pleasure. Oh, pleasure. Oh. And so this idea infiltrates Christianity, and I can't wait to show you how. All right, so these ideas that I've just been showing you all these little quotes and snippets from thinkers from that world infiltrate Christianity crazy early. Like not within the New Testament period, but pretty early on. And what we see is in a lot of the apocryphal books, like in the second century and the third century, where they're telling stories about Jesus, they're telling stories about James, telling stories about John that are not part of the New Testament, right? Fictional, what we would say is fictional stories. Um, this idea is very present. So take a look at this one right here. This is from the Proto-Evangelium of James. And it talks, this is actually a book that talks about the birth of Jesus. And there's this... <laughs> It's so weird. There's this incident where Mary gives birth and this midwife delivers the baby and somehow Mary is not only a virgin before she gives birth, but she's still a virgin afterwards. That's pretty hard to believe. So anyhow, this is, this is something that, you know, and I don't, I don't accept this at all as historical but it shows you what Christians believed about bodily pleasure and, and bodies and sex and all that kind of stuff. And the midwife went forth out of the cave. This is at the birth of Jesus. And Salome met her. And she said to her, Salome, Salome, I have a strange sight to relate to thee. A virgin has brought forth a thing which her nature admits not of. Then said Salome, as the Lord my God liveth, Unless I thrust in my finger and search the parts, I will not believe that a virgin has brought forth. And the midwife went in and said to Mary, Show thyself, for no small controversy has risen about thee. And Salome put in her finger and cried out and said, Woe is me for mine iniquity and mine unbelief, because I have tempted the living God. And behold, my hand is dropping off as if burned with fire. So her finger gets um, melted or whatever. And then Mary has to pray for her or bless her or something to heal the finger. Mary, this is the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. This is where Catholicism is. Yes, yes. This is, in, this is already pretty early. I don't have an exact date, but I know it's second century. So it's in, somewhere in the 100s AD. Uh, oh, it gets better. This is from the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which is probably a book you've never read. You can read it though, it's available online for free, of course, like everything. It's an interesting story about this woman, Thecla, who hears Paul preaching, and she's about to get married to this guy, and she hears Paul preaching, and she just sort of like falls in love with Paul, and it's like this whole romance, except it's anti-sex. So like, they don't ever like touch each other, or but it's like, it's like a celibate romance. Okay, it's just totally out there. But anyhow, this is from the Acts of Paul and Thecla. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are they who keep their flesh undefiled, for they shall be the temple of God. Blessed are the temperate, for God will reveal himself to them. Blessed are they that abandon their secular enjoyments, for they shall be accepted of God. 
Blessed are they who have wives, as though they had them not, for they shall be made angels of God. So if you have a wife as though you had not a wife, it means that you're remaining celibate within marriage. Blessed are the bodies and souls of virgins, for they are acceptable to God, and shall not lose their, the reward of their virginity, for the word of their father shall prove effectual to their salvation in the day of his son, and they shall enjoy rest forevermore. So this is allegedly the teaching of Paul, right? This does not at all agree with the teaching of Paul we have in the New Testament, but that's a side point. So Thecla was listening to this from her window, and she's just like, oh, this sounds so true. I just, I just can't help but agree with this. And she did this for three days from the neighboring house. Then Thamiris ran into the street to observe who they were who went into Paul and came out from him. And he saw two men engaged in a very warm dispute and said to them, Sirs, what business have you here? And who is that man within belonging to you? who deludes the minds of men, both young men and virgins, persuading them that they ought not to marry, but continue as they are. So again, this is somebody claiming that Paul is advocating not getting married. I promise to give you a considerable sum if you will give me a just account of him, for I am the chief person of this city. Demas and Hermogenes replied, we cannot so exactly tell who he is, but we know that he deprives young men of their intended wives and virgins of their intended husbands by teaching. There can be no future resurrection unless you continue in chastity and do not defile your flesh. So it's like you, you could hear like the Christian teaching from the Bible there, like don't defile your flesh, don't follow the lust of your flesh, right? But here it's being applied even within marriage, which you don't ever see anywhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, Paul says the exact opposite. He says if you, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, if you uh, deprive one another of your conjugal rights, as one translation puts it, then you're giving Satan an opportunity to tempt you. Right? So, I mean, it's totally... Paul who says it's better to get married than to burn. Yeah, right. Yep. That, he also says that. Well, anyhow, Thecla leaves her fiancé, and the city tries to kill her, and she's saved miraculously, baptizes herself in a water fountain with, like, killer seals in it, and then travels around with Paul, and then they eventually try to kill her again. And, you know, she's, like, in this romance with Paul, but, like, there's no, there's no actual, like, romance part of it. Like, there's no kissing, there's no touching, but, like, they're, they're in love intellectually. All right, so then we have the Acts of John. The Acts of John. This comes from the second century as well. And we read, And whereas there was great love and joy unsurpassed among the brethren, a certain one, a messenger of Satan, became enamored with Drusiana. Drusiana is this beautiful, very virtuous Christian lady. Though he saw and knew that she was the wife of Andronicus, to whom many said, It is not possible for thee to obtain that woman, seeing that for a long time she has even separated herself from her husband for godliness sake. Art thou only ignorant that Andronicus, not being aforetime that which now he is, a God-fearing man, shut her up in a tomb, saying, Either I must have thee as the wife... Okay, so Andronicus, her husband, 
This is uh, Drusiana's husband. Are you guys following me? Are you alive still? Yeah. So Drusiana is this really pure, chaste Christian woman. There's this other guy, I forget his name, but he wants to have relations with her. She's married. He's the messenger of Satan. Yeah, he's the messenger of Satan. He, uh, he, Drusiana is married to Andronicus, and there's one incident where Andronicus actually shut her up in a tomb saying, either I must have thee as the wife whom I had before, or thou shalt die. Her husband said that to her because she converted to Christianity and she's like, I don't want to have sex anymore. And he's like, well, either you're going to be my wife or you're going to die. <laughs> and she chose rather to die than to do that foulness, which is basically have sex with your husband. If then she would not consent for godliness sake to cohabit with her Lord and husband, but even persuaded him to be of the same mind as herself, will she consent to thee desiring to be her seducer? So Andronicus basically like, all right, I'm not gonna kill you. We'll just have to go on celibate. And so like, you think, she, you think she's gonna fall for you? I don't think so. Depart from this madness, which hath no rest in thee, Give up this dead, which thou canst not bring to accomplishment. Well, the guy's name is Callimachus, the guy that wants Drusiana so bad. Drusiana found out about Callimachus and his lust for her. And she was so disturbed that her body could in some way inspire lust and sin in some other man that she fell ill and died. Just the thought that she could be a stumbling block to another person. So they buried her in this tomb, or you know, it's not like buried like we buried, they placed her in this cave. And so Callimachus said, well, if I can't have you in life, I'll have you in death. And so he paid off a servant to access the tomb and attempted to rape her corpse. He undressed her and he's just about to rape her when a huge snake bit the servant of Callimachus, who's like the lookout guy. And an angel commanded Callimachus, Die, that you may live. And instantly, Callimachus dies in the tomb. On the third day, John entered with Andronicus, Drusiana's husband, into the tomb and raised them from the dead. And Callimachus repented. Okay, so that's this whole story, the Acts of John. It's just one part of the little story. But you see how they talk about bodily pleasure. Obviously wrong. So these documents show us that early Christians thought holy people shouldn't enjoy bodily pleasures, especially sex. This is Clement of Alexandria. By, his, by the standards of his own time, he's a moderate. He actually even believe, believes it's okay to drink wine, but only one bowl. You should never have a refill. <laughs> so Clement of Alexandria, and yet as a moderate, listen to how he talks about bodily pleasures. This is talking about uh, the ideal Christian. He admires those who have adopted an austere life, those who are fond of water, the medicine of temperance, and flee as far as possible from wine, shunning it as they would the danger of fire. Clement goes on to say that he approves of sexual intercourse within marriage. So that's a little different than these other ones, right? But he goes on to say, pleasure sought for its own sake, even within the marriage bonds, is a sin and contrary both to law and to reason. So you can have relations if you want to reproduce, but if you're doing it just to enjoy it, I'm sorry, but that's sin. Then in his other work, the Stramatis, Clement says that a Christian, quote, tastes not the good things that are in the world, entertaining a noble contempt for all things here, end quote. 
Clement despises all money and dominion and, quote, hates the inordinate affections of the flesh, which possess the powerful spell of pleasure, end quote. He says, you should hold a noble contempt and that all things that belong to the body or to creation and nutriment of the flesh are to be avoided. In short, his view is summarized, and this is a good way to think of it. It is absolutely, or this is his way of thinking of it, it is absolutely impossible at the same time to be a man of understanding and not to be ashamed to gratify the body. Then now, again, this is a Christian source. This is not a pagan source. So he says, if you are a man of understanding, then you should be ashamed to gratify the body. And this is not just talking about sexual pleasure. This is talking about in general, like you're hungry and you eat, that's gratifying your body. You're tired and you sleep, that's gratifying your body, right? Asceticism deeply infiltrates Christianity. For example, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, Anthony, Athanasius, Jerome. Famously, St. Anthony goes off and lives in the desert by himself. He's the first famous monk who denies himself pleasure all day and all night as like spiritual warfare. He actually lives in a tomb for a while. <laughs> this is Anthony, or Anthony, probably the most influential monk of early Christian history. He lives in the fourth century. All right, so what's the solution? How do we solve this problem? How are we going to take resurrection on the one hand and the Fido on the other and work it all together as a Christian theologian? Well, this is what Origen did. He said, when the saints then shall have reached the celestial abodes, they will clearly see the nature of the stars one by one and will understand whether they are endued with life or their condition, whatever it is. And they will comprehend also the other reasons for the works of God, which he himself will reveal to them. And in all things, this food is to be understood as the contemplation and understanding of God, which is of a measure appropriate and suitable to this nature, which was made and created. And this measure, it is proper, should be observed by every one of those who are beginning to see God, to understand him through purity of heart. And so the goal here is contemplation of God in the afterlife. It's not to enjoy bodily pleasures or anything like that. It's to have an understanding through the purity of heart. Uh, Augustine says, the flesh will rise again, a celestial and angelic body. Owing to their ascetic sensibilities, Christians like Origen and Augustine reimagine resurrection as a heavenly or angelic body devoid of pleasure. Now, I told you we wanted to look at four points in this lecture. The first point was what early Christians say about the believers in the kingdom with respect to pleasure. Well, they said, you guys, you only believe in the kingdom because you just want to have bodily pleasure. Your, your lusts are not under control. That's what we looked at. Then we looked at the culture, the science, the philosophy, the educated perspectives of that day. And we saw that this idea of anti-pleasure was all over the place, going way back to Plato several hundred years before Christ, but going right into the philosophers from a non-Christian perspective, from a Jewish perspective with Philo. Most Jews didn't think that way, but Philo and his group in, in Egypt did think that way. And then we looked at early Christians, and we see this anti-pleasure mindset seeping into Christian books and thinking.
So what about the Bible? Here are my five points from the Bible, and I'm just going to summarize them for you. We're not going to be able to take time to really analyze each in detail. Creation itself. In the beginning, God plants a garden, and he calls it Eden. Do you know what the word Eden means? Pleasure. (laughs) So from a biblical perspective, God begins the world with a garden of pleasure. He puts naked people in it and tells them to have a lot of kids and eat whatever they want, except for from that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It could not be more opposite than the philosophers. It starts with forbidden knowledge and lots of pleasure. What are they saying? Forbidden pleasure and lots of knowledge. (laughs) It's like exactly the opposite. And you don't find Jewish people hung up on issues related to pleasure and celibacy and all that. You look at the original design God made, he he gives our tongues 10,000 taste buds. He loads our genitals with erotogenic nerve endings. Who do you think designed the pleasures and the sense perceptions of the body? God. So God is more of an Epicurean than a Stoic himself. And then you look at the law. What do you see in the law? You don't see fasts. There's only one fast. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Everything else is a festival. God is the God of festivals. You've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles. There's only one day of fasting. And then what is the Sabbath? Is the Sabbath a day to take off and torture yourself? No. It's a day of rest, a day of relaxation, a day to enjoy the works of your hands that you're doing all the other days. Right? So even from the law perspective, it's pro-pleasure. And then you get into the wisdom literature. Forget about it there. You look at the Proverbs. This is Proverbs 5.18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. May her breast satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated always by her love. There's a boundary, right? Because Solomon crossed that boundary and just went bananas. But uh, Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to be happy and enjoy themselves as long as they live. Moreover, it is God's gift that all should eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. This is exactly the opposite of the philosophers. Exactly the opposite. The philosophers said, don't take pleasure in eating and drinking or toil, labor, what you do. Whereas Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is saying, enjoy the work of your hands. Life is fairly meaningless, right? It doesn't say fairly. Life is just vanity and everything else, but at least you can eat and drink and take pleasure in your work, right? That's what he's saying there. So even the wisdom literature, you would think the wisdom literature would be the least likely to endorse pleasure. But the wisdom literature, the the Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, right? Song of Songs. It's like fireworks in that book. The whole endorsement of pleasure idea. All over the place. And then, but then even you look at Jesus. Jesus goes to a wedding. Does that mean Jesus is pro-marriage? Why else would he go to a wedding? 
So what early Christians start doing is they start looking at Jesus. They're like, well, Jesus was single. Jesus didn't have sex, so obviously sex is bad. Yeah, but Jesus himself went to a wedding. And when they ran out of wine at the wedding, he took all that water, however many gallons that was, 120 gallons of water, and turned it into wine. So Jesus is pro-wedding and pro-wine. <laughs> obviously not drunkenness, but wine. Then we have Paul dealing with the... Uh, ascetics of Colossae. In Colossae, there were some people who were saying, hey, pleasure's bad. Pleasure's bad. Paul directly addresses that. He says, do not let anyone disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, dwelling on visions, puffed up without cause by any human way of thinking, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to things that perish with use. They are simply, simply human commands and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-imposed piety, humility, and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value in checking self-indulgence. He's like, don't listen to these people that say, don't eat, don't touch. These ones right here, regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that so-called wisdom. It just has an appearance of wisdom. You think you're going to deny your body what it, what it needs, and then you're, you're going to be a severe treatment body, and that's going to save you? That's not what's going to save you. Or in 1 Corinthians 7, which Josiah mentioned earlier, he says, look, if you're going to be overcome with sexual desire, then just get married. Just get married. That's 1 Corinthians 7. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time, to devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So I, I do want to balance this off on the other side, though, because the Jewish scriptures are very clearly pro-pleasure, pro-eating. Like, <laughs> they have all these festivals, right? Um, pro-sex, pro-having lots of children, and all this. But at the same time, the Bible does put boundaries on pleasure. I want to be clear about that, right? So it'll say, okay, have alcohol, but then it'll say, don't get drunk. It'll say, all right, have sex, but keep it within marriage. What, what, what the Christian view is, or the biblical view is, is to say, all right, pleasure is good. Pleasure is a gift from God, but it works in this boundary. And if you take it outside this boundary, then you've got lust. Then you've got desire that is out of control and is going to ruin you. You want to take pleasure in your work? Go ahead, take pleasure in your work, but take a day off. Don't become a workaholic. Right? So there are boundaries around these sorts of things in Scripture. And then last of all, what's our situation today? Our situation today, bringing things forward, is the exact opposite problem. We live in a culture that is obsessed with pleasure, obsessed with satisfying your desires. You watch the commercial on TV and what does it say? You've had a long day. You deserve, you deserve this piece of chocolate. You deserve this or that, right? That's our culture today. So a lot of the insights from this ancient mindset 
are the opposite of what we have today. So today, rather than telling the culture, hey, Christianity is pro-pleasure and everything else, they're like, who isn't pro-pleasure? Now today we're saying, well, actually, you really should limit sex to marriage. And, and our culture's like, oh, man, how could you? How could you be so prude? You should limit sex to between a man and a woman. Or even just between a man and a woman, yeah. I mean, it's just totally different, right? Everyone's obsessed with pleasure. We're all supposed to accept whatever gives you pleasure. You do you. I'm going to do me. You do you, right? That's the mindset that we have today. So it's totally different. I, I can't really address that in this lecture. This is a Kingdom of God class, not like a cultural engagement class. But my point is, Look at the reason why they rejected the kingdom. Reason number one, it was too crude. Because they thought the universe was this lower realm where change happened and change is bad. And living in this lower realm forever is dumb. Nobody believes that anymore. So that reason for rejecting the kingdom is now completely invalid. Reason number two for rejecting the kingdom. The kingdom is pro-pleasure. Well, nobody's anti-pleasure anymore. So that reason for rejecting the kingdom is now completely invalid. And next time we'll look at rejecting the kingdom for being too Jewish, which is the third major reason, third of three, at least that I found, why Christians rejected the kingdom. We'll see how they thought about that and why that's not valid tomorrow. I wonder what you think about all this. It is certainly a different world than the one we occupy today, but it's important to understand the past in order to understand how this important biblical doctrine got discarded and why we need to recover it today. If you'd like to read my paper from the 2013 Theological Conference, you can find it under articles on restitutio.org or in the show notes for this episode. Also, I just wanted to read out a couple of quick comments. One comes from last week's episode, 102, The Kingdom is Too Crude, where Patricia Littler writes, Thank you, Sean. Good review. My comment is, let's not succumb to the science, so-called, of today. While it's true we should be good stewards of the earth, we should take care of what God has given us. However, God is not dependent on us and our care, for He is in charge and has set up the world as He pleases, and He will make it all new without us. Well, I certainly agree with the sentiment here that what God wants, God is going to get in the end. However, I'm not at all certain that he intends to do that without using people. I think it's important that we do get on board with what God thinks about the world and what God plans to do with the world. And as far as how he does that, that is that is up to him. Um, I, I know this maybe sounds silly, but like I know if I was in charge of a cleanup project, um, I would have the people who made the mess clean up. And uh, in the uh, interest of stewardship and care for the world, I, I think we should put it in an effort to try to take care of the place. Obviously, I'm not trying to say we should go to any kind of extreme. I'm not a strict environmentalist or anything like that, but I do believe in just basic stewardship principles. And I think probably most Christians have who take seriously what the Bible says in the book of Genesis. Also, on episode 100, Kingdom Allegiance, Paul Peterson writes, What a fascinating lecture, and thanks for including the extensive notes. Is it too late to nominate this episode for the 2017 Restitutio All-Star Game? Well, thanks, Paul. I, well, we'll have to wait and see which episodes went out for 2017 as far as 
the most downloads. I will release that information at the end of the year, just before New Year's, but hopefully this will be on there. Uh, this Kingdom Allegiance subject is something that is very important and very relevant to our situation today as well as Kingdom Citizens. So if you haven't, if you haven't yet listened to either of those two episodes that Patricia and Paul reference here, they are respectively episodes 102 and 100 of the Kingdom of God class, lectures 9 and 11, and uh, check those out at restitudio.org, or you could just subscribe in your phone or tablet and get that information. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a new episode coming out on Sunday, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.